Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay. Welcome back after a long break as we're out filming Apache Blues, episode nine of nine episodes, Dave. Nine episodes of the Know Their Story podcast. Uh, Special guest today. He was a lieutenant with uh, the Apache Troop, Apache Blues to be uh, um, specific. I, I have to remember my words. Uh, served in Vietnam, you were 68 to 69, correct? Correct. Uh, started out as an armorer and as you called it, a drug deal to be moved over to the Blues, uh, where you spent your time, returned home to Southern California in 1969. Uh, please welcome Lieutenant R.B. Alexander. Hello. Nice to meet everybody. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago. <clears throat> I was a young 17-year-old, graduated from high school in Newport Beach. Uh, had a little bit of a drinking problem and uh, ended up running afoul of the law. Nothing serious, but I was confronted with a judge, uh, Duncan, who was the only judge in Newport then. And he said, you know, Mr. Alexander, you're not really necessarily a bad guy but you've got a problem with alcohol and you either join the army or you're going to be in my system. And I uh, chose the army and certainly no surprise. Three weeks later, I received a letter that started out greetings and off I went, uh, not quite 18 to Fort Ord. And I realized I was really in the army and I had probably overreacted uh because this was serious <clears throat> and you know you went through your first eight weeks of bct basic combat training and i was 17 most of the other guys that were in my company were 19 uh 18 or 19 some older and uh i'd never interacted with other people and uh our drill sergeant was a giant rock of a guy that served in Korea named uh, Buford Berry. And he kind of picked me out of the platoon as a smart aleck. And he said, you know, I'm either going to break your spirit or I'm going to break your back. And all the lack of respect I had growing up for my parents and the priests and all that disappeared. And uh, I was young and good shape, surfed a lot. So running, we ran everywhere. Uh, as it turns out, because of a slow heartbeat, I was, became an extremely good marksman. Um, and Sergeant Barry kept his eye on me. And the Army uh, loves to have tests. And at the sixth week, they have the uh, basic Army Battery 1 test, which is going to determine your MOS. And by now, I'm running into Vietnam, guys coming back, and I'm realizing I don't want to go there. That I'm just not cut out for that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so I took the tests and 
it was a 200-man company, and it, through attrition, if you do really poorly on the test, you go into certain things like humping ammo or other stuff. To get into the combat arms, you kind of got to have your act together. And I was still in the class with about 50 other guys, and they had the uh, OLI, which was an offer, officer's leadership inventory. But you had to have two years of college. So I got tapped on the shoulder and asked to leave the room because I didn't have two years of college. And that's when Sergeant Barry came around the corner and he was an E7. He outranked everybody else in the room and he said, let the boy take the test. So I took the test and then the entrance exam to officer's candidate school, which was not like the SAT. It was like, do you like to camp? Are you afraid of loud noises? That kind of stuff. <clears throat> and all of a sudden the army was faced with a dilemma. There was a guy that was qualified to get into OCS, but didn't have a prerequisite two years of college. And in the 60s, when in doubt, in those days, the Army lowered the bar. Mm. And I saw that as my ticket away from Vietnam. And so I went through Officer's Candidate School Ordinance and was commissioned a, uh, a second lieutenant and I managed to, because now I was six, seven years younger than the rest of the guys. I was able to get some sleep, do well academically, and through, again, attrition, you know, only 50 guys graduated out of our class of 200. <clears throat> I graduated number one in my class and was given the opportunity to have a, uh, a regular army commission, which was the standard everybody would take but I didn't see myself as a career officer. So I read below the line, below the fold, and it said, should the candidate not wish a regular army commission, he can have two things, his choice of schools and his choice of assignments. So with my creative mind, I found out where was the longest school, because I only owed the, the army 24 months from the date of our commission. The longest school the Army had was a joint Army-Navy school in Indian Head, Maryland, which was EOD. I said, well, there goes six months. Then I found out where they send the least amount of officers to Vietnam, and that was Fort Lewis, Washington. They had just sent a whole unit over there. So if you were there, you were a permanent party. So I went back and I said, you know, I'd like to serve my country as an EOD officer and be stationed in the Pacific Northwest. And they granted my wish, and I ended up uh, knocking on the doors of Fort Lewis, and I only owed the Army 18 months then. And I was the EOD officer for the post, for North Post. So my job was simple. I was up early, which I was used to. I would clear the UXO, or any unexploded ordinance, at the end of the day, which was no big deal and be sure that the right ammunition was on the right trucks to go to the training ranges. And so I went through these six months and I thought I'd outsmarted the entire United States Army because I was not going to Vietnam. Now, now in December, <clears throat> they had commander's call, the end of December. And had I made it to January 3rd, I would have been within the window of not being deployed. And it, I was called to the Brigadier General's office with the other company grade officers. I wore my dress blues. I thought I looked kind of snappy. Uh, 
evidently I had one or two too many drinks before I got there. And all I had to do was go through the receiving line, shake the general's hand, introduce myself to his wife, put my card in the silver tray and have a drink and leave. The next morning, a captain told me the last time he saw me, I had my arm around General Ashworth and I was telling him how much I liked Fort Willis and what I thought we could do together to make it nicer. So that next Tuesday, I was on a cargo plane to Panama where I was, he not only sent me to Ranger School, but he sent me directly to Vietnam. So when I arrived in Vietnam, there was no question I'd go to a line unit. So there Almost I go. made it. <laughs> Almost there made I it. go. And so close. So close. <laughs> but again, you know, again, I got a break. I mean, first brigade was stationed at Tainan. They needed a base defense officer that had training in explosives. So they kept me at the headquarters. Oh God, for two months. And all I did was check the base perimeter, build these Fugas mines. I was pretty set. But we knew the first the ninth was at the end of TNN. We would yeah. go down there and watch because that's where the real war was. The first the ninth had their own lift ships, 10 of their own Cobras, and 10 of their own Loaches. And we would go there and just watch the activity. And those guys, well, they were the warriors. Everything that was a contact for First Brigade, you know, nine out of ten were called in by the first to nine. And it was amazing to watch uh, the real war being fought. The other line companies were out in the, in the boonies for months at a time, boring holes in the jungle. <clears throat> but these guys would get in, get out, and they were kind of a legend. And uh, you can imagine my dismay when they called me they called first brigade and asked for an EOD officer because they had encountered cement bunkers near the uh, Cambodian border and they needed to blow them up. So I show up down there and I'm TDY to the first and ninth for a couple of days. <clears throat> and I'm going, oh, this is scary. And a young Lieutenant West Pointer, Tony Buholtz greets me and said, just don't, he said, the look in your eyes is not confidence. You look scared. And I, he said, I got your back on this. So we went out and <clears throat> sure enough, cement buckers were there. You guys have seen the pictures. Yeah. And uh, I blew them up. And uh, I went out two or three more times with them to blow up certain items, tractors, <laughs> caches. Uh, and then February 22nd came and the blues got shot down and they lost five guys, uh, horrible firefight. And Lieutenant Buholtz just said, no, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. I, I lost my edge. <clears throat> and that's when he got with the first sergeant and they made the deal to transfer me uh, to first and ninth. So I was, inner unit transferred and inner branch transferred. So I was now filling an armor captain's slot and I became the blue platoon leader. Uh, you know, I don't know at what point my higher power or 
my training or what combination of things gave me the confidence to go back to the training of cleaning the weapons and what I'd learned and no boonie hats, everybody wore steel pots. We carried extra ammunition because you're supposed to get an AAL of 200, uh, you know, 210 rounds of 5.56 five, and, uh, and 600 rounds per M60. Well, we were carrying 2,000 rounds per M60 and an extra 10 magazines of M16 ammo. And the pilot was the lead pilot, Captain Beaton. We were already jamming eight fully loaded combat troops into the, uh, the aircraft. The ACL was eight, and that doesn't count all the extra ammunition. And I was starting to get a little nervous, and Sergeant King came up, put his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, Lieutenant, it's been my experience. The only time you can have too much ammunition is when you're wading through a river or you're on fire. And I thought, and I was to find out within the next months that he was telling the absolute truth. We all we needed was water and ammunition for what we did. And so I led that platoon for 10 months. I was the longest living lieutenant uh, to ever have that assignment. Uh, and it was almost surreal. I mean, I was in a firefight in Tainan in August 1st and 2nd. And August 7th, I was walking off an aircraft to Travis Air Force Base where I had an exit physical. They said, thanks for your service. And that's the first time I got any idea that there was something different. I've been in the jungle. I didn't know the peace movement had started and they'd vilified the soldiers uh, instead of the assholes that sent us. But they did tell me they don't suggest I wear my uniform home. And I really didn't give it much thought because it was an out of body kind of experience. I went back, went to college, and I caught up with the guys who were juniors when I was a senior. And I think for the next 10 years, I suppressed that it was real. Uh, and I think it was really guys like you. I was guys like you that brought out my pride. And I started contacting some of my old battle buddies and found out it really did happen. And I really did pay part of, of, of being with a group of guys that were truly heroic uh, in their actions, their deeds, and their patriotism. Um, and that was the key. I started talking to my veteran buddies and realized what we did, we did with a pure heart. We were misinformed, surely. Uh, but we were the best America had at the time. And we were we were fighting for each other. And I became proud of that. And, and I've since run into a lot of the guys that were not able to get that catharsis mm -hmm. of talking to another veteran and saying, I know your fear. I know what that's like. Maybe it's survivor's guilt, uh, certainly PTS. Um, I started to get well when I got to talk 
to other veterans that shared my doubts and my chest puffed out a little bit more. I was proud to have served with some of the best people I ever knew uh, in a cause that we were, we were head faked. I mean, I, I'm not sure that with the exception of World War II, I can look at any tactic that, that the government put our soldiers into that wasn't up to and including Afghanistan and Iraq that wasn't really some political guy's misinformation. And the guys that paid the price were guys like me. And, and worse than that, the guys on that wall. Uh, and so I found talking to other veterans, slapping them on the shoulder, looking them in the eye and giving them a hug, but letting go letting go of my fears. The, uh, an army doctor was treating me several years ago. When I came back from Iraq, it triggered uh, what they call late onset PTSD, which is now PTS. And I was, even though I was involved in some serious scuffles in Iraq, when I came home, my dreams were of the last encounter in Vietnam. Wow. And the doctor <clears throat> Griffin worked with me and finally saw an impasse that I had guilt that the last guy that I shot in Vietnam was going to surrender. Hmm. So she found one of my squad leaders, Sergeant Gill, who was a fire chief in Minnesota, Minnesota, got him on a conference call and asked, he was with me that when we went out from the LP, uh, or the OP became an LP when the sun went down. And that's when we were on the Mekong River and I heard a branch break. We were in Cambodia and my guys just used hand signals and around the bush walks three NBA soldiers. I only saw the first one, a young Lieutenant, and he had his AK down and I, I'd been in the jungle so long, I'd stopped being a human. I just shot him twice, center of mass, and then this entire firefight breaks out. And Sergeant Gill, I kept everybody separated by three meters. And <clears throat> so Dr. Griffin goes, what, what do you remember of the incident of April 19th? Did Lieutenant Alexander have to kill that soldier? And Sergeant Gill said, well, sir, I was, you know, I was 10 feet back from you. What you didn't see was the second guy in line was carrying an RPK, a light machine gun. If you had not dispatched that soldier, we would not be here today. Wow. So Dr. Griffin looked at me and asked me, does that give you the closure you need? And, and that was the last time I was ever haunted by that. And it was again, one veteran talking to another on a level that only veterans can about our fears and apprehensions and guilts. And I mean, if there's anything, I mean, I just wished a guy that I was <clears throat> in the Battle of Fallujah with in November of 2004, 
Pedro Alvera is now an E7 and was at my side. And I wished him a happy birthday. His career is going along fine. His family's reunited where they were separated. And again, it's one soldier talking to another, regardless of the generation gap. We, sit, we share that bond. And uh, I think you guys are to be commended for giving us the key to unlock that door. Because there's really not a lot of difference between a Korean vet, a Vietnam vet, an Iraqi freedom vet. We all sh share the same feelings. But when we come home, bottling them up does great harm to us and our families. Well, and that was what I was going to ask is you did, you've, you've alluded to it. Uh, you went to Iraq um, as an armor to help teach uh, the soldiers how to, you know, keep mm. their weapons clean in the desert. You had the help of General Funk to get there with the assurances to your wife that you would be exceptionally safe while you were over there. Um, we'll pretend that happened. Um, but... <laughs> Having been in the jungles of Vietnam, in triple canopy jungle, uh, you know, where engagements can get into hand-to-hand -hand compared to the deserts of Iraq, and, you know, engagements can be measured in, you know, the hundreds of meters in some cases. Obviously, there's not a lot of actual, like, yes, I understand completely what you went through and, and what I went through, but as soldiers, I mean, you have a an ability to have been to both areas. There are common ground. There is common ground that people can find. You know, going outside the wire, losing friends, things that no matter, like you were just saying, no matter what conflict, that people can find common ground with that to talk. When the first shot is fired, and that adrenaline kicks in. If the training isn't there and you stop to think things over, you die. And that's where the quality of training and the PMCS, the preventive maintenance checks and services on that weapon are so critical because the M16 is not like the AK. The M16 has got really tight tolerances. And if it's not clean, and it's not operating well, it'll stop. And that can be the difference. Uh, so if you keep your weapons in good order and revert to your training and have faith in your NCOs and your, your lieutenants, and, and, and it, I was in battalion level, but <clears throat> where lieutenant colonels call a shot, you know, there was a gap. There was a gap between actual combat soldiers, and I helped fill that gap because uh, I was young enough in Vietnam, and I was in my 50s in Iraq, where I could still fake it. You know, I knew enough to revert back to my training, and I believed that if I could pass on to these soldiers the importance of keeping that bolt clean and keeping the M60s or the 240 Bravos gas setting set so you don't crush the, the buffer, that they could survive another day. And, uh, and that's all I really did was try to give them the spirit that I got to survive, protect your friends, revert to your training. Uh, 
and soldier on. Uh, they, they were a little older than my group in Vietnam, but they were the best America has. And it was <clears throat> a no end of pride for me to have served, I mean, to, to have served in two conflicts with America's great, you know, best and well-trained and most patriotic soldiers that are working their ass off to do the right thing. That's the other thing about an American soldier is they're the most compassionate you'll ever, ever see. I mean, we would go down outside Sauter City with soccer balls on one side and ammunition for the AT6s on the other. And I mean, I'll, I'd like to, if I could, close with one story. Sure. I think sums up my experiences the very most. And that was, <clears throat> these days, intelligence was, and computers were evolving. And the CIA guys were getting information from all kinds of uh, sources. Uh, but it wasn't really precise. And Sauter City was a Shiite holdout that was led to all Sauter. And it was known to be hostile and Iranian influenced. And the word got out <clears throat> that another Shiite from Syria was embedded in one of these six hamlets was a bomb maker. And so we rolled in with a battalion of 2-7 Cav with two M1A1s, six Bradleys, and we enveloped the area, set out a perimeter, and we searched these six hamlets. Dry hole. We got back in the, the Bradleys. They started to bring the ramps up. And uh, in fact, I got a picture of basically dropping the ramp and what we did. And the, uh, everybody got back in the Bradleys and we were getting ready to leave. And a lady ran out into the center of the square with a burqa. She was probably about five foot. And she was screaming something and the interpreter said, no, it's just nothing, we must go. Well. The section chief was a Sergeant York of all names. <laughs> he did not, he did not think the Terp, uh, because he was Sunni, was telling the truth. So he went to the CP and got a, a Shiite interpreter and brought him into our area and, and asked what the lady was saying. <clears throat> and she was hysterical. She said, the Americans stole my gold. Evidently, everything her family owned was in three golden rings. And Sergeant York put out the perimeter again, and we went back into her hamlet. And it had been tossed, the drawers were pulled out, and he took his mag light and he looked under this mattress, which was on four concrete blocks. And on the floor, underneath the bed were three gold rings. He picked them up walked over to the lady in the center of the square, put his hand on her shoulder, gave her back the rings, and he said, I am an American soldier. I will never steal from you. So she starts crying. I'm crying. The lady looks over and she goes, the man you were looking for is over there. Jeez. 
sure enough, we rolled that guy up as a direct result of the courage and the honesty and the integrity of the American soldier. And I, 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 that is a feeling that you sometimes, I know you got it when you worked with Craig, of being among people who really had a, a moral compass. And I believe that true of the, of the American soldier. And I'm proud to have served and still proud to be of any help I can. Well, and that leads to one question I have, and we've talked about this before, but do you, with your 50-year head start on a lot of the people coming back today, what advice do you have for the troops in terms of integrating, you know, transitioning out of the military or back into society mm -hmm. or, or how to go about that? I think denying <clears throat> your part of violence is a temporary fix. But I think the, the way the doctor told me that guys, especially guys, like to compartmentalize things and they close the box on them. But as we age, and depending on the degree of violence, you can't keep that bottled up. And it has to come out some way. And it comes out in bad actions with your family, distance, talking, uh, violence, drinking, drugs. I mean, it, it, the, the connection, this energy needs to find itself a way out. And if it doesn't in the inappropriate ways, you harm everybody around you. That's why these focus groups that you've been part of at, at Fort, uh, Fort Hood and others were, we were there when they were talking about reaching out, make the call, take the call. Being available to talk to soldiers about their experiences so that they can shed that guilt or at least put it in perspective has certainly allowed me to live a more prosperous and healthy life. And that's the main thing I was, would encourage is open the door and share your experiences, your strength and your hope and your fears with another human being. Because you can't expect your wife and children and hope that they wouldn't be able to relate to the violence. I mean, you know my son was almost killed in Iraq. When he and I talk, it's like cracking your knuckles or something. It's a release of energy between two soldiers and it's father and son, but when we're talking, it's really soldier to soldier. <clears throat> it allows him to be the proud parent of, of my two grandkids that are absolutely untouched by the violence that was wrought upon their dad. And it's a miracle, but it's done by him interacting with Dr. Gruber, me, a couple of his chosen battle buddies, that stay in touch. Some have stayed in the service, once just back from Syria. Uh, it's a source of pride to have known you did the best you could with what you had, where you were, right then. You didn't let your, your country down, but really more than that, you didn't let the guy to your left and right down. Yeah. And that—that that is something that I'm, I'm proud to have served with 
with veterans of Vietnam and Iraq. And I, now when I go to Camp Pendleton and talk to kids, you know, it was almost 20 years since I was in Iraq, 15. And some of these kids were, they're post 9-11. Yeah. But still that, that comradeship and that trust has been passed down. And, and I, it, as long as I'm still breathing, I will reach out my hand to any soldier. And I appreciate you guys being part of the solution because that's exactly what you are, is you're bringing soldiers together from all eras so that they can lean on each other and forge ahead. And, and I'm proud to know you guys. We're proud to know you, even though you drag me out on the ocean every time we go there. And, uh, you can't live forever. And I won't if you keep taking me out in the shark water. <laughs> um, well, actually, I have one more question. And Dustin, uh, you might have one. Yeah, just one. Um, I'm trying to find the right way to word this because responsibility isn't the right word. But what we've been talking about with the movie and with the podcast is trying to bridge the gap also between soldiers and civilians and reminding civilians that, you know, everyone wants to change the world, make it a better place. You know, here's an idea. How about you just sit down and listen to someone's story and let them let them talk you know it's it's an amazing thing for everyone involved um what what advice would you have for the husbands wives children neighbors co-workers people who may you know how could how can they be there for the soldiers in their life well it's kind of a <clears throat> it's kind of a double-edged sword there <clears throat> because I can't really look back. See, my dad was different. He fought in World War II. I can't look back in any activity that I've been involved in that was actually the right choice. Hmm. Uh, we're not good at nation building. We're real good at regime changes, but we don't have an exit strategy. And so, Being willing to understand somebody's point of view and the depth of their commitment to do what they think is right does not necessarily mean they were correct, you know? Yeah. But the fact that they went and hung it all out, believing they were right, I think does in fact speak to their character. And that's where you need the understanding between the guys at the pointy end of the spear and those that stayed behind. Um, is one braver than the other? Is that the right word? I would, I would posture that any American, red-blooded American conservative put in harm's way would react in a patriotic and God-fearing way. Uh, and God-fearing is certainly the wrong word. <clears throat> but I do believe the intention of the average soldier and their, and their leaders is, is righteous. 
I've never seen an example of an atrocity, even though they've certainly happened. Uh, but I've never witnessed an American soldier willingly cross a line and do anything that they wouldn't be proud of in front of their kids and their wives. But any attempt to explain the violence and the horrible effects of a war, I certainly don't try to explain it to my wife. I mean, that's, that's something my son and I will talk about. And uh, sometimes we just stare at each other and realize that if it had been for God's putting a guardian angel on our shoulders that better men than, than I didn't come home. Uh, and I would ask the average yuppie to just to pause and realize what we were willing to stake for our freedom and our country and understand that that goes all the way back to the revolution. A few people are at the pointy end and they've got to make a decision right now how to react. And everyone that I can think back on that really amounted to my description of American serviceman reacted with honor and courage, but mainly they were pure. And I, uh, I don't think that that necessarily changes from a revolutionary soldier <clears throat> to the World War I guys that went charging over when they thought they would do the right thing. God knows World War II was pretty clear cut. The poor guys in Korea, uh, those of us in Vietnam that, that survived, uh, and all those kids that came back. I mean, we keep losing less people. I mean, we lost 500,000 in World War II. We lost 58,000. <clears> Vietnam. We lost 6,000 in Iraq. And while you may be able to expo you know, spout off that these casualty rates are dropping tremendously, if you get the knock on the door, it really doesn't matter. If you're a bold star parent, you lost your son. It doesn't matter that <clears throat> the casualty rates were lower. It's almost like not catching this damn COVID. You know, the numbers may, the numbers may be as encouraging as hell. There's still, till you start coughing. Uh, so, I mean, I just thank you guys again for giving me the chance and the opportunity to share my story with any other veteran of any other conflict and know that my, my phone is always available. And if anybody needs help, I'll be there. Well, and to be fair, when you're saying, you know, we're civilians, you talked with us. I mean, we had an advantage that we set up some movie cameras, but you told us that you said more than you thought you were going to when we first sat down that day. Um, and I, I think you were, I, from my perspective, I think you were happy that you did. Um, like I said, you guys had a key. I just didn't know there was a lock. You know, I... I was as surprised as you were at the course it took, but it was certainly cathartic for me. And then putting me in touch with Beale and all these other guys that were shattered 
shattered by their secrets. And now watching them, and I interact with them, thanks again to you guys in this project, interact with them and see growth and health and happiness and pictures of their kids. Uh, I'm proud to be part of this with you guys. And we're proud to have you. And, and I'm not going to drown you. There'd be absolutely no benefit for me <laughs> having you as chum. I mean, oh, man. we need you. <laughs> well, I, you know, last time you had us out on the water, I came home and there's that Coast Guard video of the guy surrounded by great white sharks on the exact bay you had us on. That's kind of a death knell to get me back out there. It was days that, later, Dave. It was days and days later. That was a misunderstanding, and <laughs> I actually had a complete pass for you with those sharks. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll believe you. No, they were going to return you to Seattle one way or the other. Yeah, well, I think I'd rather hang out with the sharks than our autonomous cities here. So, <laughs> uh, Well, listen, guys, I'm going to get up and go pedaling, and God bless you. All right. Thanks Dustin. for hanging out, RB. Hey, please reach out to Sergeant Smart. You bet. We okay. will. I think you'll find him. He was, I've sent you the pictures, but he was one of the most squared away young E5s, took over his squad, and I had the, the blessing of Sergeant Gibson, Sergeant Smart, Sergeant Espino, and Sergeant Gill, all Rangers. <clears throat> All, all of them completely head faked out of the Rangers across the, the, the active to join the Blues. But they all survived the war and they all led their squads in a way that made this lieutenant happy to, and proud to be part of it. Smart, smart stayed after I left. And guys like Craig, believe me, you've, you latched into some real amazing Americans when you met Craig Jorgensen and, and some of these other guys. No. So onward you go. Dustin, let's do your sign off. Uh, give us 30 seconds RB to do the official sign off and I'll, oh my God, I'll what is the cut the recording off. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Uh, when we, uh, when we stop here, uh, we're broadcasting on Facebook, it's going to stop and, and it's going to say, we'll be right back, but we won't. This is the end. Uh, <laughs> give us well done. Uh, Amen. And if you're following along on Apple or on Spotify or any of the other channels where you get your podcasts, make sure to give us a like and a subscribe. Tell your friends. RB there you friends. go. God bless, guys. All right. Go enjoy the, the sun of Southern California. Let me uh, find where the recording thing is again. And... You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.